Uh, well, everyone, uh, uh, welcome. Uh, this is the uh, NEARS uh, Holiday Podcast. I'm Jason Seidel, Cowan Senior Transportation Analyst, uh, and with me today, uh, thrilled uh, to have Ken Kellaway from Road One and Matt Menner uh, from Uber Freight to discuss uh, the uh, supply chain market from a trucking uh, port as well as a drayage side. So why don't I kick everything off here? Um, there's been a, a lot of back and forth with the supply chain, especially around the ports. Um, Ken, uh, talk a little bit about how 22 started and really how 22 is ending uh, in terms of congestion at the ports. Yeah, well, thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me again. As always, appreciate it. Thanks, John. The, um, you know, I look, 22 started chaotic to say the least. Right? A lot of challenges in the market, of course. Uh, still a lot of congestion at all the ports. Uh, and as I think everybody is aware by now, the ports weren't necessarily to blame for the congestion. A lot of it ended up at the distribution center level where, you know, we just couldn't get enough labor in the distribution centers uh, in order to accommodate the big inbound volumes of freight coming in. So, you know, you had a situation where the whole supply chain backed up from the distribution centers all the way back. And, you know, what ended up happening is the ports got choked, of course. They couldn't discharge vessels fast enough because the equipment wasn't leaving the ports quick enough going to inland locations. So we still had challenges there. Uh, that resulted in chassis challenges all around the country where there weren't enough chassis available because they were at destination waiting to be delivered, sitting under containers. Uh, so there were a lot of stress points. You know, Couldn't get equipment off the port, delayed times at the port, lack of chassis availability, uh, lack of warehouse space to bring the freight into became a big challenge because inventory was building up so quickly because so many people pre-ordered. So very chaotic the first half of the year. Uh, and it really lasted until we're just starting to now start to see things settle down. Uh, we've seen the volume reductions on new inbound orders, especially into the West Coast. Now, uh, we've seen a pretty sharp drop off uh, on orders coming out of Asia into the West Coast as people have re been able to re-inventory as, A, the market's cooled down a little bit, as everybody's aware, uh, and B, they pulled early. You know, everybody wanted to bring freight in early before holiday season because they didn't want to miss ads like they had years prior. So people pulled early. So peak for us was really more June, July, August. Uh, we saw it then and started to come down. So uh, things have certainly settled down on the West Coast. Uh, volumes have declined. So that's allowed people to get caught up and get fluidity improved again. You know, we're seeing that in LA. I mean, in New York, New Jersey as well. Starting to settle down now, not back to 2019 levels and not back to the fluidity we'd like to see yet. Uh, and they've had chassis problems. They had capacity issues related to discharge empties, but starting to settle down. Uh, PMWs calmed way down as well because volumes are declining there. But there is, it was still seeing a lot of activity, still Savannah in the Southeast, still busy, uh, not congested to the point of inefficient, but still busy, still active, uh, but that's starting to settle down a little bit. Uh, the Gulf region is still the busiest for us. Uh, Houston still very, very busy down in that market. Uh, and we don't see that slowing down. Uh, it'll come down a little bit, but you know, we think a lot of this is the result of a realignment of the supply chain network. You know, more and more companies have moved east into the Gulf, uh, whether it's e-commerce shifting of supply chain requirements where you need more DCs, uh, reacting to growth markets like Texas and the Southeast where population growth is rapid, uh, expansion of distribution centers to those markets as well. So we don't think we're going to see a big slowdown in the Southeast and the uh, and the Gulf ports, uh, but certainly fluidity is improving as the comes down back to yeah, we, we, we put out a, we published a report uh, recently, a big supply chain report where uh, we did a proprietary survey in there and found that, you know, 10 plus percent of that freight that shifted away from the West Coast, whether it went to the East or the Gulf or wherever, 
is actually going to remain there. It's not going to, it's not going to flow back. Would you agree with that number? Or do you think that's high or you think that's low? No, no, I think it's accurate. And I think if anything, it even could be low candidly. You know, if you look at what we've done as a company, I think what we're doing is reflective of the industry is we've built over three and a half million square feet of transload capacity in the past 24 months uh, from New York all the way down to Houston, uh, because people are realigning. They want to go into a transloading mode where you bring containers in, you're offloading them so you can turn them quicker getting back to the port faster, terminate the chassis in the, in the international boxes where your per diem and demerge is extremely high. Now, $300 a container per day, much more efficient to get them into a transload facility, unload them and domesticate that in the 53 foot equipment over the road. So, you know, we're seeing that trend. And if you look at the 10 year statistics, at least you continue to see that shift. You know, where the West Coast had you know, on around 22% of your overall market. Now it's ticking back up to over 37 to 38 plus percent uh, and add another percentage into the Gulf region, of course. You know, you're starting to see a pretty good balance here uh, of a shift from the West to the East where, you know, you've got, you know, 40 plus percent now in the Gulf and East Coast coming. And, you know, I think there are some other things that are impacting that as well, Jason, that I'm sure Matthew will talk about. But we've seen a production shift from China to Southeast Asia and a lot of commodities, apparel, footwear, uh, we're seeing a lot of KD furniture. We do a lot of furniture. We're seeing that into Vietnam. Uh, we're seeing production in India and places like that. So that changes trade route patterns, right? Instead of all of it coming into West Coast or even through the Panama, especially now that the East Coast ports are big ship ready. These ports in the East Coast have invested billions of dollars making sure they can accommodate 17, 18, 20,000 TEU vessels that they couldn't four and five years ago. They've got the depth. They've got the vertical clearance. They've got the berth capacity now, so they can take the big ships that are coming through the Suez now. So, you know, that's one of the other things that's driving this trade pattern changes. Country of origin, big ship, ship economics in the uh, East Coast. We think it's here to stay. And cost, you know, our cost per square foot. And these new markets is a third of what it is out in the West. Wow, a third. Jeez, that's that's yeah. low. Um, you know, I, I, I failed to uh, uh, let everyone know that John Myers from DM Bowman also was with us. And John, John's my colleague at NIR, so I, I always forget that he's actually on this panel uh, and I'm in discussing leads. So, it's John, sorry about that. Um, let, let's shift over a little bit um, and, and talk uh, about the truckload market. Um, you know, Matt and, and John, you guys are, are both in it. John, you're a carrier. Matt, you're a 3PL. Um, so, John, why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, what you've seen sort of throughout 22 and, and, and where you think we are right now in the marketplace and that big supply demand mix, because you know what, I know you don't play a lot in it, but man, that spot market continues to, to be under pressure here. Yeah, and <clears throat> I agree, you know, as a carrier, we don't really play in the spot market. Less than 1% of our business is in the spot market. and. The challenge is, and you know, with Matt on the line here, there's three PLs that you do business with that are great. You know, Matt's companies never come to us and said, oh, the spot market's down, now we want you to reduce your rates. However, others have. And the challenge with that is, since we don't play in the spot market, I never went to a three PL and said, I need more money because, you know, the going great is now three times what I quote at you. You know, we did do price increases throughout the entire pandemic. We did do them through 20, only because of driver pay and other factors, equipment cost, et cetera. So there are reasonable price increases. There was no 10%, 30%, 100% price increases for us because that's not the game we play. 
But now we're starting to see that come around where I've been approached by my asset-based customers saying, hey, brokers are coming at us right now and offering us ridiculous rates. We're turning them away because you stuck by us and you gave us capacity. Are you going to be able to continue to give us capacity, right? And that commitment means a lot to most asset carriers. But again, on the 3PL side, we've seen it and they've come to us. We've asked them, I declined to reduce the prices. Um, not saying they're getting a price increase, you know, prices is going to hold a lot more steady, I think, at least going through this half of next year. But with that being said, what we've seen is I think most asset carriers held to their pricing as well. So they went out for a first round of bid. Then they went for the second round. Then they went for the third round. And then they had a call saying, hey, um, I'm really under pressure to get some reduced prices. So they go to the fourth round. And I don't think a lot of them are seeing that on the asset side. What I do think they're seeing is a lot of the owner operators now that do not have the luxury of the freight that they had out there are coming around, taking some lower rates and picking up some of that freight. So I think you're going to see that. It's tough for those guys right now because they overpaid for their equipment. A lot of that excess capacity that was floating around because, you know, our tender acceptance at best during a pandemic was probably 60% because there's just so much freight out there on the lanes. Now, as we're closer to that 100% model, a lot of that has dried up for those carriers. And that's not a good thing either because, you know, that affects the market as a whole. So I think you're going to see some normalization in pricing going for at least the first half of next year. And then I guess we're going to see where we go, right? We're always anymore. We're always just one variant away from catastrophe. One big snowstorm away. <laughs> one, um, one something. <laughs> so, you know, is it normal? I don't think we're ever getting back to, you know, 2017, 2019, 2018 was an outlier, but I think we'll normalize at some point in time, but it's still going to be a struggle. We're still short drivers. We're still short on equipment. None of that's going away anytime soon. Well, it, it's interesting because, you know, Ken brought up chassis still being an issue. You know, talk about uh, equipment because I've heard from a lot of carriers this year, and especially like all the massive ones that I cover, whether it's Knight or Schneider or Warner. I mean, they're basically throwing money at the OEMs, you know, please give us trucks. And, and, and they haven't been able to get trucks. What are you seeing right now from your OEMs? And then also talk a little bit on the trailer side, because you guys are one of the largest trailer lessors in the country. So we're still not getting the delivery. You know, last year we ordered 5,000, we got 300. This is trailers. This is trailers. That's a low percentage hit ratio. Yeah, we, 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 just, we just started doing work with one of the major manufacturers. So we had the opportunity to go tour one of their facilities. And, they, and the way in which they talked about their order book was would be uh, it would be like proud papa language right you know what i mean that yeah. they you know for the foreseeable future we're uh we're oversold right which is i guess a nice situation to be in go ahead sorry john <laughs> no no matt and, and, you know, that's exactly what they're out there pushing because yeah. some of the smaller carriers that had orders in obviously may have canceled them but they're being that is being consumed really quickly by everybody else that's been waiting for them so you know depending who you talk to and which one you're going to see better delivery in 2023, but mostly 2024 from the truck manufacturers. I think you're seeing it improving, but at the same time, you know, we've had this conversation on one of your calls in the past. 
you know, we were originally supposed to have our first electric truck in by the end of the year. Now I think we're looking at sometime around March. So, you know, things are still behind. It's, is it as bad as it was? Probably not. And again, you still have supply chain issues. I really hate that word anymore, but it's, you know, still prevalent out there. You have lockdowns in China, which, you know, keeps going into the chip manufacturers. So you still hear that. And it's, a, you know, it's a waiting game. You, like, like I said, I don't, we're, we're normalizing, but we're not there yet. Okay. And, and on, on the used equipment side, what are you seeing on the truck side? What are you seeing on the trailer side? Um, so obviously the prices have come down a lot on the used equipment and in trucks are sitting longer, obviously you're not getting the, you know, big influx of owner operators that you had, but at the same time, you're still not getting your replacement equipment in. So there's, you know, I, I think from two standpoints, one, trucking companies are still using their used vehicles as parts for their new vehicles because it's necessary. And on the trailer side, yeah, that truck and trailer side, your cycle's longer, right? Because yeah, we would have loved to get rid of a hundred old trailers out of the system last year, but you could, you can't, you just can't. And when it comes to, you know, leasing you a trailer, I'm still on a backlog. I mean, you could call me today and ask me for one, I'll tell you no. You could ask me for a hundred, I'll tell you never going to happen. And, you, you know, and it's crazy. So like, you know, I have customers that reached out for a hundred of them two years ago, and I might have them up to four trailers right now. So it makes no sense, right? It just makes no sense. Wow. Um, well, let's talk uh, the three PL perspective with uh, with Uber Freight, Matt, and you guys. Obviously, with the uh, with Uber purchasing, uh, Transplace have a, a much more much more large service offering here for your customers. You know, and you tend or Transplace to tend to serve the larger customers, right? So. You know, talk about what you're seeing in the marketplace for sort of drive and TL, and then I'd like to dive into sort of, you know, how your customers are viewing 2023 and what their main concerns and planning are. Yeah. Um, thanks again, Jason. It's always a pleasure to join this event. The um, So uh, Uber Freight now is a combination of the former digital freight brokerage business of Uber and the legacy Transplace business that came together in October of 21 and, you know, day one of kind of NUCO, if you will, the new Uber Freight was uh, this past October, right? So, you know, we in total now have uh, about a $17 billion freight network that we operate on behalf of about 360 unique shippers that range in transportation spend from a million and a half dollars in controllable to $700 million in controllable. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, the complementary aspects of the business without question remain uh, about a $3 billion plus gross line truck broker, uh, intermodal marketing company, formerly known as Celtic, that will do 300,000 plus rail, you know, 300,000 plus lifts this year on behalf of with using uh, rail provided equipment. And then a very strong and vibrant um, cross-border business, predominantly between the United States, Mexico, and uh, back and forth. So um, focused on customs brokerage, as well as warehousing, um, transloading, so on and so forth. Um, so our overall, our customers across our five core verticals include consumer packaged goods, food, bev, industri diversified industrial manufacturing, chemicals, uh, and associated industries, um, and then retail, uh, inbound supply chains for QSR, so on and so forth. 
uh, you know, across the board, everyone is off. Um, you know, should be no surprise there as we you know look at macroeconomic trends. Um, you know, I, I think not off as far as everyone would have originally thought six months ago when they were making the call using the R word at that point. Um, I think we have we're we are uh, buoyed a bit by what we seem to be a, a, a slightly faster recovery, I think, than we were originally expected. But volumes are down. Um, you know, the uh, the flight to quality is on, right? So the you know the spot market has all but dried up, right? Um, Jason, you you guys follow that closely as well as everyone else, right? So, uh, and everyone's trying to work their way back into a routing guide. John, you've already been there, right? So you're, you're nice and warm at home, right? You know what I mean? You got a lot of other people that are bum rushing the door trying to get into those things because they were. Uh, they were happy to hang out in the spot and make money at this point, right? Uh, and I think the smart shippers, um, many of which we have the fortune to call our customers, right, are uh, are taking full advantage of uh, of a more favorable market, trying to work the right carriers into the routing guide and you know and develop relationships. You know, we're still we're still running bids, we're still seeing reduction in freight expense, right? And I'm talking contract and then i'm also talking about um strategies that we're specifically employing as 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 uber freight to uh, look at low volume non-repetitive moves and how do we how do we put our network together in a 17 billion dollar buy and uh and and affect positively affect that shipper with a solution that might not look like certainty of contracted rate but certainly looks nowhere as nowhere near as painful as a as a bear spot rate at this point or the, certainly the trailing spot rates as we think about it so we're doing all sorts of interesting stuff to try and uh, aggregate that volume and then apply our leverage to that volume to provide the shipper in a 100 transparent cost known truck rate known margin known uh commercial environment in order to ensure you know that customer ends up with a better price position than they had previously right so they gotta there's got to be a reason that they partner with us right so uh, but we are i think we are cautiously optimistic that um 23 will remain a uh relatively neutral freight environment right so um where the there'll be a reset back from the high water mark um we're, again we're running bids and we're seeing we're seeing historic we're seeing returns to historic spreads between the lowest cost assignment of trucks to the network versus the achieved, right? The engineered outcome, if you will, the smart one that makes sense that takes into consideration high quality carriers and favors incumbency and the ability to drop and all that other stuff that we talk about, the associated importance of that. Um, so we're starting to see that, that that long trend line of behavior is now returning after a really kind of a, a abrupt dip, if you will, for the last you know 24 months or so. so I think we're cautiously optimistic around 23 and uh, and, ex and expected this remain again, barring all the things we were joking about before, you know, another another variant, uh, a polar vortex or series of, you know, a, a, a strike in some way, shape or form, right? The, unfortunately, the variables are almost too uh, incalculable these days, right? You know what I mean? Like, you know, it only takes, I was joking with somebody the other day that that like this, the equilibrium of our industry kind of, it's like a, it's like a pin balancing on like a mouse's nail. You know what I mean? It doesn't take much to knock it off of, uh, off of its balance at that point. Right. And I would argue it probably has only become more fragile as time's gone by, given all these other things. And John, to your point, like all of the fundamental things that challenge the North American truckload marketplace in no way, shape or form have changed. Right. You know what I mean? Driver wage, 
you know, challenge of the occupation, right? Government regulation in order to minimize the inflow of, of qualified, capable 18 and 19 year olds that are looking for a job, right? That aren't college material, right? You know what I mean? Or for that matter, maybe our college material and just don't want to take on $300,000 worth of debt, right? So there's, there's all sorts of things, all those negatives, you know, all those challenges still remain in full effect, right? No, none of those from, from certainly our vantage point have been meaningfully addressed at this point. So. I, I'd love to go to the driver's market, but I want to, I want to stay on point with some of the comments that you made. Yeah. Have you seen a shift in terms of how the shippers are, are planning to spread their business between contract and, and let's just say what you're describing as maybe a pseudo spot exposure. Yeah. yeah, I was funny. I was talking to a, a shipper that we're in the process of onboarding as a, a 3PL customer and they ship, uh, they ship a expensive, exp expensive, valuable and instantaneously fensible product. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and I was talking to their, I was talking to their, uh, Head of procurement, and he's like, Matt. Well, but just why wouldn't I like just spot bid every load? You know what I mean? Like, look, like look at this market. You know, and again, he's a super good guy, but he's not. He's not a trans guy by any stretch of the imagination. Like, I'm like, you know, I will not mention his name, but but uh, I said, listen, you and you can't when when it starts to turn. It's like it's trying. It's like a Grand Central Station trying to go through one roundabout door. You know what I mean at rush hour. Like you're you're not all able to go and get into the routing guide at that point, right? You and everyone else, and everyone else in front of you, and these guys are you know twenty million dollar buy. Everyone else in front of you that has more buy, right, is going to apply that buy in order to ensure that they've shored up their position with that carrier on that lane for those trucks at that rate. You know what I mean? So like. You just can't pivot that well. Matt Harding with uh, with our organization says it very well. You know what I mean? Like you know the the market can change. The 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 the, the carriers, John. To your point, you guys can't go. You know, just manifest. You know, trucks, drivers, and trailers. You know what I mean? Because the market has now gone up by twenty points in the last month, right? You just you can't move that fast in, right? But the market certainly can change that fast out, right? So I said to him, you 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 need this, you know, you need this gentle balance where it's you know seventy percent committed and thirty percent just makes sense to float because you know you it's it's not it's not of interest to a carrier to make a commitment. If they make a commitment, it's going to be an inflated commitment because that load might show up once every six weeks, right? And then they got to plan for it at that point, right? So they've got to figure out how to price it, right? So so it's, I think that we'll continue to see, we still think that the smart strategy is, you know, bid consistently, stay marked to market, you know, in, you know, irrespective of cycle, right? And then apply these other creative solutions to address that low volume trailing, trailing, trailing lane freight, freight that, you know, that, that, you know, that, that carriers will haul under the right circumstances with the right rate, right, in some way, shape, or form, in a fashion. And we think that that's part of the value unlock of a 3PL now. You know, we talk about big numbers. They don't mean anything unless we put that freight and that capacity that's native to the network to you to work for that shipper in a way in which they can actually count the savings, right? It can't just be this, just trust me, I'm going to really do a better job than you've done, your, done yourself. you got to show them the math at that point. And we think... That, that transparency is a point of differentiation has been core our model since we came into existence 30 years ago is transplace right so you would um you know it remains kind of a core tenant to us as we think about our business that's a great answer i appreciate that now i, I want to jump a little bit to the rail side since you know nears is a railroad facing organization 
Um, let's face it, the rails, the class ones have had their challenges this year yeah. uh, with the service levels. That has been absolutely all over the press. Uh, they continue uh, to, to be sort of underwhelming, if you will, in service. Um, I guess talk about, um, uh, for, for Matt and Ken, talk about how that has impacted uh, your business. What are the class ones telling you uh, in terms of what to expect in service levels for 21 and fluidity? Uh, and then, you know, like, you know, Ken, you can come at it from uh, a drainage standpoint. And Matt, I guess you can come at it from an intermodal standpoint. Yeah. Ken, you want to start? Yeah, I can start. I mean, look, I think there's been a lot of, you know, unpredictability lately. Of course, <laughs> in the rail strike that now has been, appears to be resolved, thank God. I think that was very important for not only the uh, transportation sector, but certainly important for the country as a whole. Could have been catastrophic for Agreed. us when you're in a situation where we've got a volatile economy right now. So very, very important that was resolved, which was good news. So, you know, I think what we're paying the short-term penalty for is we're, we're seeing a big reduction of volumes off the rail right now. I think part of that is because people just hedged uh, and they didn't put a lot of volume on, uh, you know, onto the system for a while to make sure that this wasn't an issue last Friday, I guess, December 9th, whenever it could have been a major issue. So part of it was a hedging issue. Part of it's a volume reduction. So, you know, when you look at our Midwest operations today, Chicago, we're probably seeing the smaller years. Seeing a lot of domestic intermodal uh, customers of ours are stacking equipment now uh, because they're off hiring a lot of the assets, 53 foot boxes and stuff. Uh, you know, do we think that'll restore as this thing settles? Uh, we do. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> we see a transload based off the west coast as well we see a lot of transload uh, activity off the west coast that converts into 53 foot rail boxes coming east and into the midwest you know that volume has settled down as we know because the west coast imports have settled down so we're actually seeing some of that shift to the east where we're transloading and putting on the eastern railroads now going up into the midwest part of it's just a reduction in overall volumes because the market settled Part of it's a reaction to the pending strike, which has passed us now. Uh, we are also seeing a little bit of slowdown across border. We do a lot of automotive space, uh, and that's all coming from to and from Mexico into uh, the Midwest markets, feeding into the automotive sector. We're seeing a little bit of slowdown there as well. Again, part of it, I think, due to a pending strike. That so, you know, we're kind of waiting to see where volumes are going to go right now. Um, you know, the intact 40-foot boxes have slowed down as well in the Midwest, again, partly because of the slowdown in consumer goods coming in from Asia off the West Coast. Uh, you know, we're seeing it there. But, you know, we're a very diversified carrier. So, you know, I call it GDSM, General Department Store Merchandise, for us, we're seeing the biggest impact in the slowdown short term. But that's only 20, 25% of our business. You know, the remainder of our business is we do a lot in the high-tech space, believe it or not, uh, moving parts and components. Uh, for building server farms, data warehouses, and that's very busy. That hasn't slowed down. Uh, they're not participating in recessions. They're going to build more and more data warehouses because the migration's going there uh, as people convert off their own asset-based servers and stuff. Uh, we're seeing a lot in the automotive space, believe it or not, even though I know the journal came out with an article this weekend saying automotive was slowing down a little bit. There's such a backlog because of the supply chain challenges that we think those bills are going to keep going for a while. And we're also seeing a big conversion to electric vehicles. Uh, and we're participating with a lot of those folks where we're seeing a lot of activity still, no slowdown in sight, uh, you know, whether it's any of the big three. Uh, and we're also dealing with electric vehicle company that you're very aware of that uh, continues to be very expand. So it's really a mixed bag right now, Jason, where we're seeing it, but certainly a slowdown in the Midwest right now on big box and small box. Uh, we think partially because of the strike issues uh, and hoping it comes back. 
up. You know, our big retail clients that we are dealing with, our 25 plus percent retail clients are saying they expect to see this softness for the next two or three months as inventory burns off that they pulled in early uh, and they get rid of some of the, you know, out of fashion product that they would want to burn off right now through discounting and, and pushing it to the discount retailers. Uh, and even our discount retail clients, some of the big national guys are saying they're buying domestic instead of importing because they can buy cheap right now from domestic vendors that have excess inventory, whether it's footwear or apparel or, or, or consumer goods. So, but they all anticipate that inventories will start resetting again post uh, Chinese New Year, it's, um, which is good. So, you know, I don't see this thing going on long term into the third and fourth quarters of next year. I know some people do, but we're not hearing it from our customers. You know, they're not anticipating up years, but they're anticipating pretty consistent years with, with what we've seen. And in, and in terms of dealing with any of the rail congestion, uh, you know, whether, whether it's at some of their yards or whether whether it's at some of the gates, you know, what are you seeing there now and what are the railroads telling you? Well, the congestion is still there right now, okay. mostly because the inbound distribution center still can't handle a lot of it. There's so much excess inventory. We're still dealing. We run warehouses all around the United States. I was just on a call with a group out of Europe. Uh, that's one of the largest retailers in the country for furniture. Uh, and we're setting up warehouses all around the U.S. for them. As we speak today, it's still pop-up warehouses everywhere because they don't have anywhere to go with the inventory fast enough. Partly because consumer sales have slowed down. But again, a lot of it's because of the big push everybody made to bring inventory into the system so they didn't get caught without inventory. You know, the just-in-case concept versus just-in-time. So I think it's a balance of both right now. Um, so, you know, it's causing congestion in the real network still. Uh, Probably because they can't get the loads off the ramps fast enough, and the empties are starting to pile up now because they don't need them back in the West Coast because the lines are slowing down. So, you know, we still have some challenges. Is it getting better? It's getting better because uh, it was disastrous six months ago. I mean, we had we were picking up loads that were being shuttled off the ramps in the Midwest into satellite facilities uh, and going to the ground, and we're waiting for three and four picks to get a box that we need, and you, you're there forever. So. It's certainly getting better, no question about it. But uh, the challenges aren't all the rail fault. The challenges are partly just because the network doesn't have the place to put the equipment right now and offload it. I mean, in warehouse vacancy rates are less than 3% in a lot of markets. In the Southeast right now, less than 1.72% in hot markets like Savannah. So as fast as we can open a building, we just opened up another five, 450,000, 480,000, excuse me, in Houston. We moved in last week. The building is going to be full by next week. It's, uh, it's that fast. And some of it's new customers. It's <laughs> some of it's new customers that are calling us. They want to get the boxes out of per diem and out of demerge because it's costing them a fortune. They need all that. That's what's causing still a lot of the stress, even the volumes are coming down. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's, it's it sounds like sort of my, my golf game. I probably probably shoot about one one. <laughs> if I got out there a little bit more, I'll probably easily get down about one ten. But that number is still not good. <laughs> Improve, but still not good. Gotcha. Um, well, well Matt, what are you seeing from the rail side? You know, you, you mentioned Celtic and their, and their big exposure, obviously, to the intermodal market. You know, what, what are the people there telling you? Yeah, so um, I will probably just scratch the surface here, right? So David Marsh, who leads intermodal for us, has done a phenomenal, he and his team have done a phenomenal job, I think, navigating um, arguably probably one of the most challenging 12-month periods that we've had in the industry in the last decade, and maybe more. Um They've consistently, you know, performed well. Volumes are up. You know, overall performance has been great of that business. Although we are now starting to see 
you know, volumes, volumes start to list. I mean, I think to what Ken said in terms of just overall, and many of our customers are shared customers in terms of, you know, we're moving, we're moving retail product for retailers and, uh, and the like. So, so I think that's part of it. We've seen the rails uh, performance incrementally improve over time. It seems as though, um, you know, it's there, there's, there are signs of life and that we might be heading back in a positive direction here. Right. But certainly it lists far from what was expect, you know, what we had grown accustomed to uh, earlier in the year, right? Um, I we we do a we consistently do uh, an analysis to look at mode conversion when a customer comes to us or prospect comes to us and says, you know, hey, we'd like to partner with you for your freight management capabilities, and um, it's I I I I literally had to like check like I thought my eyes were wrong when I saw some of these transits where you know I mean where you would have thought that's a five or a six day lane all day long and now it's nine 11 14 days and it's like and we, we started to we actually started to trim the analysis and said and I said if it's if it's plus three or four days over truck single driver like don't even put it in there because nobody's going to consider that especially given the environment that we're operating in at this point so so we remain bullish on uh, the future prospects of intermodal but the you know we are we are seeing we are seeing incremental improvement for the second half of the year versus the first half of the year but as i said our team just did a great job of managing through an exceptionally challenging time at this point so and, and matt this is going to be a question that's going to sort of touch on intermodal but but sort of broader to the rest of your customer base how, how important are esg considerations when they're when they're coming up for new bids right now yeah, increasingly, uh, and Uber has a, a very aggressive platform with respect to um, that. Uh, we have a we have an entire there's a functional aspect within the organization that is specifically focused on on ESG and uh, and understanding our you know our, the footprint uh, current footprint current emissions you know and how we ultimately improve it. Our uh, our engineering team has gone about uh, under under Matt Harding's direction. And leadership, you know, actually constructing a set of models that we have a high degree of confidence or at least appropriately representing, you know, the implications of these of these designs, right? And uh, and more and more of our customers, it used to be I can think of one for years that always was like, you know, that's really important to us, and they were like one out of like hundreds, right? You know what I mean? It is it is becoming a much more consistent request or or conversation or hey if you could help us with that that's great it's important to us now right so it's not um it's it is moving towards the mainstream at this point right it's not every conversation and it's not you know it's not like every shipper says what's your fuel management strategy you know that's a mainstream conversation right like but it's it is i mean the, the level of energy and frequency that's occurring now over the course of the last two years three years is is marked at least from uh, my perspective. So, do you think that's going to get to be mainstream in the, in, in the coming I, few years? I, I don't. I don't know how it won't. Right? You yeah. Know what I mean, like you know, like you know, they're you know they you know the government, right? The global society, government, governments, plural, right? And then certainly, uh, I mean, you know, Jason, it's affecting your guys' world, right? We've got customers that are owned by holding companies, financing companies, and they're saying like, this will, this will negatively affect my ability to, to raise capital, right. You know, or raise, raise competitively priced capital. Right. So, so yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's on, it's on the verge. Go ahead, Kenny. Yeah, no, I think you're right on that. So we're seeing the same thing. We've got private equity sponsors that are our partners in the business and 
uh, certainly, you know, we're getting more and more questions about time. I think in our intermodal logistics space, we're way in front of the competition. You know, we've already converted all our transload facilities are all electric forklift trucks. And we're talking 40, 50, 80 forklift trucks per transload facility. Wow. We've put all electric yard trucks. So we're using Orange as our electric yard truck provider for all of our dedicated Actually, in our Oakland facility, we just put solar panels on the roof, uh, and we have an actual locomotive. If John will be happy to hear, we actually have a locomotive on site, and we do our own yard switching. So we just spent a half a million dollars bringing an electric yard switcher, which is charged off the solar coming off of the roof. Cool. Uh, we've been the first ones to test electric vehicles in the East Coast ports. So we started with Nikolai. Uh, we're working through some issues there with them, but uh, we've got Tesla coming and Volvo coming as well. So we're already converting some routes uh, to electric vehicles. Uh, and we're even doing stuff, as you all know, I'm an investor in a water business. We're actually converting all of our distribution centers to water purification systems. No plastic bottles allowed in our buildings going forward. Uh, and this is a reaction to most of our customers are Fortune 500, like Matthews are. It's um, and this is a reaction to their demands and requirements, and you know, being a good corporate citizen. But you know, all of our powerpoints, all of our decks now have ESG slides in it, get a lot of attention, and people have to get focused on. A lot of our customers have divisions that are ESG based now, where you know they have leadership focused on sustainability, uh, and so we think it's it's gaining a lot of traction very rapidly, and it has to. It's the right thing to do, uh, and uh, we're taking action. Yeah, same thing with Cowan here. I mean, guys, we, you know, a couple couple of years back, maybe a year and a half ago, we teamed up and uh, with, with sort of an ESG company to give scores to uh, almost all of our covered companies. When you see a Cowan report, there's an ESG score on it as well. And, you know, when you look at assets in our management, that's that's been a rapidly growing uh, portion uh, of the business. It, you know, years you know, years back, it used to be just out of Europe, and now it's sort of everywhere. So that's, that's a big deal on our end, too. Uh, I look, I know we're going a little bit over time here, but I, I wanted to touch on two more things really quickly. Um, Ken and John, you both brought up the driver side. Talk about driver availability and what you see for driver pay in 23. Yeah. Go ahead, John, start, and I'll jump in if you'd like. Yep. Well, uh, you know, it's not going down. Let's put it that way. Um, we're going to have to, you, you know, stay competitive. It has to be an industry that people want to be a part of and can make a living wage in. You know, one thing that's changed within my company, we're all going out now personally to driver recruiting schools, and we're having that conversation with people entering the driving force, partially to listen to what they want, but also to see, you know, mindset-wise, what do they want to do? Because one thing we see changing, everybody wants to be not regional, they want to be short haul, right? So that length of haul is getting shorter and shorter. The pandemic taught us there's a lot more DCs closer together. And that's really been key to recruiting, but also key to, you know, retaining drivers. They want to be home every night. They don't want to be home just on the weekend or every other weekend. And we've been incredibly fortunate in the Southeast with the recruiting. Um, we're bringing drivers in, we're able to retain those drivers. The Mid-Atlantic is still the biggest challenge for us because there's probably the most competition there. But, you know, it's at one point in time, it was, you know, you try to sell them on the equipment, you try to sell them on this, or, you know, I, I've heard companies that were pushing the NFL package, right? That's what drivers, it's not really what drivers want. Drivers want a predictable income, they want to be able to make a living wage. They want to be able to have family time. And, you know, when I talk to these drivers, it's not what you think when you think of, you know, somebody entering the 
course. When I go to these schools, it's a broad age, age range. The last one I did, youngest was 18. The oldest was 66. And when you ask them what they want, it's pretty much the same thing. Um, you know, the 18 year old is going to have challenge because he has to find a company that's going to want to be part of that pilot program. We are part of that pilot program in the Mid-Atlantic, but not in the South yet. And, you know, our biggest need and biggest challenge is team drivers. It's almost impossible to find somebody that wants to team up these days. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's just- It's always been a tough market though, right? Team's always been tough. It's, it's always been a bigger challenge, but, you know, when I first started with this company, we had a ton of teams and very little turnover in those teams. Now our team drivers are making six figures a piece and we still can't retain them. It's a challenge because it's not meeting that work-life balance, which I think is key to retaining drivers these days. You know, it's never going to be a 40-hour week. It's never going to be a nine-to-five job. But how how conducive could you make it to having a home life, a family life, holidays, baseball games, course, concerts? You, you know, you have to take all that into account because, uh, again, things changed drastically in the past couple of years. And now you're not only competing for drivers with, you know, the typical driver mindset, but, you know, this goes to... You know, Matt, Matt now works for Uber. And the last time I tried to get an Uber it, from Charlotte, which is a major city, my wait time was an hour. Uh, last night, I got in from Cincinnati, 26 minutes for me to get an Uber at Newark Airport. Yeah, and one, one finally did show up because I had two cancel. I asked him why. You're out delivering freight. Well, hey, I, I, had not, I had nothing to do with the ride side. Yeah. <laughs> That may be there. You Uber need a truck. It's a different Uber thing. eats, yes, ride, no. So if you know, if you want a cheeseburger, call Matt. <laughs> but, but, you know, these, the same workforce has packages in their trunk for Amazon as they do. So it's a choice now. So, you know, the options are you could drive a truck, but you could also deliver freight in your car. And at the end of the day, that driving, you know, what one pays better? What one has a better quality of life? And that's a challenge. I just, you know, got them meeting with a major retailer. They're using DoorDash to do their store deliveries now. And their goal is to beat be Walmart on a retail side. And it's not only they're delivering their own product that you typically go to the mall to buy, they have a marketplace now, just like Walmart. So from a well-known mall retailer, you can now buy your toilet paper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Things have changed. Yeah. yeah. Look, I think we always, we're big advocates for the driver, of course. We've always been advocates for the driver. It's how we make a living. But, you know, I think, America moves by truck. First mile, final mile, middle mile, doesn't matter. America moves by truck. And the opportunity cost is high now. There are so many different options, as John highlighted, we didn't see 10 years ago. You didn't have all the final mile delivery. You didn't have the white glove delivery. You didn't have the Uber options and stuff. So we've got to make it attractive for these drivers. And we work hard on it every day, making sure we, and a lot of it is freight selectivity uh, and quality of customer, candidly. You know, we have to make sure that we have the right type of freight going in and out of the right type of locations for the customer that the drivers want to move. Uh, you know, the drivers can be selective today and they have options. So, you know, when we're looking at what customers we want to do business with, we have to be smart about can we get the drivers aligned properly with it. And, you know, that's important. But, you know, I think there was this stigma for years and years in America that being a driver was a bad thing. Being a driver is not a bad thing. Being a driver is something people should be proud of to be. It's uh, We've got drivers now making you know, six figures uh, and having a great job with consistent pay every day, uh, consistent home every night. 
know, so the quality has improved, I think, in a lot of ways of the lifestyle for the driver. The pay is there today. And, you know, we've got to get more people to advocate for people to become drivers. I don't know if we have to call, call them transportation engineers to change the, the mindset of it, but it's yeah. a good job for people uh, and we need more of them. So, you know, look, we've got to make sure we pay people properly. We've taken the inflationary rate increases like John did. Our position is very similar to Bowman's. We didn't take the big accelerated increases against our customer. We did what we had to do to offset the inflationary impact of vehicle costs, fuel costs, driver costs. I don't see us going back on driver wages. Uh, you know, they've been elevated, of course, a little bit the past few years. But and in the intermodal logistics space, because of the shift we talked about earlier with more and more volume coming to the east and the Gulf, we need to create a new driver market there. You know, these intermodal drivers were the last 10 years with nothing to do. We've got to attract people into this sector because it's so rapidly grown that we've got to get people excited about coming in out of these ports and, and moving into modal. So it's got to be a competitive wage. It's got to be a good customer to service in and out of, you know, good velocity, consistent freight to attract them and good benefit programs. You know, we give them fuel programs for independent contractors, healthcare programs for our company drivers. You've got to give them good programs. So, uh, you know, that's what we're trying to do is make sure people understand you should be proud to be a driver. Make sure we give them a good, consistent paycheck. Make sure it's a good paycheck that uh, they can count on every week and they've got the same consistent business. Okay. So, number one, as you guys know, I'm a former trucker. So, uh, you know, I always love the old um, uh, saying that the, uh, that they had for one of the truck groups that said without trucks america stops and i think <clears throat> the pandemic brought about people's greater appreciation for the men and women in the trucking uh industry so that was uh, that was a good thing so so both of you driving pain not going down but probably not accelerating as much as it had over the past three years i think that's fair to say that's fair <laughs> to say perfect all right all right so let's uh ken you talked a little bit about sort of predicting what was going to happen as we moved in 23. So as you think about the supply chain, whether you think about available capacity or pricing um, or even demand, what are your thoughts on 23? And, and, and I'll start with John Myers here and then we'll, uh, we'll finish with Ken since he already sort of previewed this a little bit. My crystal ball has been broken for years, Jason. <laughs> um, what, what seriously what do you say do you think we're going to be in a little bit of a downturn for the next <coughs> quarter i think so how's that going to affect things i don't know because again we're just one you know to matt's point the pendulum swings either way and you just don't know from one day to the next right now where we're going so i don't think we're going to see what we saw in 2021 um, 2022 was a bit split down the middle, and I really think 2023 is probably going to start off a bit slower, and then we're going to see what happens. I don't want to predict any further beyond that. Fair enough, Matt. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think you're still looking at slightly inflationary, right? Just, I think you're one and a half to three percent of contract for 23, right? You know what I mean, so, and it, but all bets are off if any one of those other 417 things that we can't even, we can all imagine, but hope don't happen, happens, right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think we're planning our pricing being fairly flat in 23. I think we'll see a volume downtick the first one to two quarters, especially the GDSM type stuff as we talked about, Jason. You know, our customers we're aligning with are similar to what Matthew and John are doing. We're looking for that contract long-term strategic relationship. We're not your transactional guy. Uh, we're not the company for that. Uh, we deal with our customers in a very, very strategic fashion every day. When they call us, we react. We're there to protect them in the long-term. We want them to protect us in the short-term. 
We don't take advantage of you in the long term. Don't take advantage of us in the short term. We've got to protect capacity for people. We want to make sure when the market upticks uh, that we're going to be there to support them. So our initiative right now is continue to diversify the service offering so we can offer more solutions to our customers. Our target areas and sectors that are not as volatile uh, as standard retail may be. Uh, and most importantly, take market share away right now, which is what we're doing. So, so we're, we're pretty bullish in the long term, but then we'll have to navigate some choppy water in the next one or two quarters probably. Well, that, that, that sounds fair, guys. Well, listen, I want to thank each of you for taking the time away from your busy days today. I want to wish everyone Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays, uh, both my panel and the people listening to this great podcast. Everyone, take care. Great. Thanks, Thank you, bro. Jason. Merry Christmas. Happy Merry holidays. Christmas. Happy holidays, everybody. Thank Thanks. you. Yeah.